0: You're listening to the Surf Simply Podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to
1: surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 53 of the Surf Simply Podcast. We're recording on Monday, the 4th of December, 2017. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Ru Hill. Hello, everybody. And Asha King. Hello, Webland. So this is going to be a, a bit of a, a special episode. We, uh, we sat down this morning to record an interview with, I think, probably a, a personal hero of all of ours. It is the surf historian and journalist, Matt Warshaw. And I, I thought it was funny when we were recording that
0: usually when, whenever we've, we've got a, an interview that we're doing on the show... We're all kind of sitting there. We're like, we're, we're like looking at each other with notes of questions we all ask with our hand up. And this time Matt started talking and we were all just sat there like school children, you know, yeah. just like mouth
1: slightly open listening to his stories.
0: It was yeah. so cool.
1: I hope you guys all enjoy the interview, but um, before we get into it, part of the reason Matt came on the show is to raise awareness for his Encyclopedia of Surfing online project, um, which is right now needing to do a fundraising drive uh, to raise the funds to keep it going for another year. So Matt mentions this towards the end of the interview, but for those of you that maybe don't make it all the way through you can donate to the project uh, or subscribe to the website uh, by going to the encyclopediaofsurf.com and there will of course be links in our show notes uh, to where you can do that
0: although I, that's not to say that there's any reason why you wouldn't make it to the end of the interview <laughs> it's a really good it's one of my favorite interviews we've done on the show i love how he I, he talked about uh, bill finnegan and uh, you know who is someone else that we've interviewed on the show who wrote barbarian days some of the things that he says about you know his his intersecting with him and how we had to get in touch with
2: amazon to get bill's name moved on the thing i really like that yeah i don't know it was, it was awesome getting somebody on the show who who has such a deep body of knowledge and in such a reverence for surfing you know we talk about it every week and he just has so much background knowledge so yeah it was a fascinating conversation i loved all his little anecdotes and
1: yeah it's, it was a it was a fascinating conversation so i hope you enjoy it ladies and gentlemen um i'm going to hand over to Asher now to
2: start the conversation and we'll be, uh, we'll
1: be back at the end to sign off.
2: So today I couldn't be more excited than to have a conversation with Matt Warshaw, surfing's de facto historian and one of my personal heroes in the surf space. Matt is prolific in his writing but is best known for his work as a staff writer at Surfer Magazine uh, as well as his brief tenure as the editor there a regular contributor to the Surfer's Journal, and his eventual writing of both the history and the encyclopedia of surfing, which are, for those who don't know, two big, beautiful reference books that are pretty much flat-out amazing in their scope. The hardcover books themselves are great and totally worth a spot on your coffee table, but the really amazing part to me is the digitized web versions. Uh, The website includes a ton of relevant photos and videos that really give the stories and characters a bit more color, and make the whole work come alive in a way that's just not quite possible, in my opinion, in print. Our regular listeners will be pretty familiar with Matt and his work, as we reference him on pretty much every show. So without further ado, Matt, welcome to the Surf Simply podcast.
3: Thanks, guys. Wow, that was an amazing introduction. I'm, I'm still blushing. Thank you.
2: Uh, I, I must admit, you've been on my short list of people that I wanted to interview since we started the, the show about 50 episodes ago. So thank you very much for joining us.
3: Stoked to be here. Thanks, you guys.
2: So I guess a good place to start off would be, your your work is incredibly detailed, particularly the encyclopedia, and it features an entry for nearly every halfway significant figure over pretty much the history of our sport, but there's no entry for Mr. Warshaw himself. So could you tell some listeners who may not know you a little bit of your story? I was born in Los Angeles
3: in 1960, and... I was a I'm a valley kid is any are
2: any of you guys from California? not from California, but i I've spent a little bit of time there, so you
3: know the stigma of being born in the valley right a little bit so, so you know Valley go home it almost doesn't matter where you live on the coast. there's a valley somewhere that people who don't belong <laughs> are supposed to go home to right so I was born in the San Fernando Valley and that's sort of a family secret almost we 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 ended up moving to Venice Beach in 1966, and I started body surfing, and then board surfing a couple of years later. And this the weirdest thing was, you know, I ended up in, I was in grade school with this kind of lunatic little blonde kid named Jay Adams, who had this super cool stepdad who, even though Jay was only six years old, was teaching him how to surf. And we wanted to surf, but we weren't quite brave enough, or we didn't have a dad who was going to take us down there. But we would go to the beach and when Jay was six or seven and I was a year older and we'd all sort of lay in the sand and watch Jay ride waves, which just seemed incredible. He was so small and he was so, you know, just, he, I mean, he was kind of a nutcase, so we didn't, we, we kind of expected <laughs> he was, he was going to be the one doing it while, while we watched. And then a year later, we all got boards and Jay and I became, were sort of the ones that wanted, I think, to surf the most. And, and Jay's mom Felaine was kind enough to every morning in the summer of 1969 she drove us about a mile north to Santa Monica Pier which was protected by a breakwater so the waves were you know extra tiny and we learned how to surf you know in the shadow of the Santa Monica Pier on the on the north side in the summer of 1969 and as we were learning to surf you know when when we weren't down at the beach we were so Completely enthralled by it, that we also started to skateboard. So for the first two or three years of my you know surfing life, there I was in Venice in grade school with this crazy sidekick named Jay, who you know later became really famous as the kind of leader of the 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 whole Dogtown Zephyr thing. Um, so Jay and I had absolutely nothing in common. Um, I was a book really bookwormy <laughs> kid, and my parents were. You know, both had advanced degrees and my dad worked at a place called Rand Corporation, which was a think tank, and my mom was a junior high school teacher. And, you know, Jay's dad, stepdad, he used to work with Dale Velzi and, and you know, he was just this guy kind of genius with making boards and working with resins and stuff. And and Jay's mom was just sort of a stay-at-home mom and they were incredibly poor. They lived in a one room, like literally lived in a shack. And, uh, Jay was the guy that was, you know, spent half of his day at school in the principal's office. And I was the guy that was getting, bringing home straight A report cards. And I, and I was really kind of timid and he was insanely brave, but, but we both were so freaked out and stoked on surfing and skating that that became the thing that connected us and it connected us, you know, really closely for about three years. And we fed off each other's energy and, you know, we both got better. Faster than all the other kids, not just in our town, but also a town or two to the either, either side of us, and and then you know we hit junior high school and kind of went our separate ways. But I have a lot of uh, I still think about Jay a lot because it didn't just get me started surfing; it just it gave me like a boost. It was it got me way out there in front really early on, and and you know everything sort of started from me meeting up with Jay Adams on the schoolyard at Anchorage Elementary and in 1968 so so that was the um, that was sort of the early part of it and I I was on the Zephyr team I I owned the first ever Zephyr surfboard that's amazing yeah which I was really bummed about because I went in to get a Jeff Ho surfboard Jeff Ho was the guy that made all the you know the local boards that everybody wanted these just beautiful airbrushed things that looked like you know like it looked like weapons and just gorgeous shiny beautiful pointy things and I I got a Jeff Ho surfboard for Christmas one year, and about three months later it got stolen, and I was crushed. I was t- probably eleven or twelve. I, I was crushed. I was just devastated. I was I cried all the way home from that, and I ended up working a bit that summer and saved up all the money I could and went in to buy another Jeff Ho surfboard, but I was a little short on money, and the board I ended up picking up, you know, three weeks three weeks later they handed it over to me and, it wasn't a Jeff Ho at all. It was a, it was this different thing. And I, you know, my dad was there and I go, what is, you know, what is this? And he says, it says Zephyr on it. And I turned to skip and at the shop. And I said, well, what's Zephyr? And he said, well, that's our new line of boards. And what he didn't tell me, was that that was the new like discount line of surfboards. They cost like 20 bucks. It <laughs> cost like 20 bucks less, you know? And, and I kind of hung my head and, you know, wah, wah, wah. And I, I had to walk out with this discount board, but the. The board ended up being actually better than the Jeff Ho that I I'd, I'd lost, so I loved it. And I didn't know until about five years ago that that was actually the first thing that ever had a Zephyr design on it. And in fact, they didn't even have a label yet. It just had an airbrush thing that said Zephyr. And I've got a picture of it, and you know, it didn't mean all that much to me until a few years ago. And Skip called up and said, you know, that's the first, that's the first Zephyr board we ever made. So that's that weird little footnote. And that, that that was before the whole skate thing started. And once the skate thing started it took over the surf part of it. And I, I, I was an okay skater but not that good. And you know, that, that's when Jay and I kind of went our separate ways because Jay went on to fame and fortune as a skateboarder and I just went into I just went on to middle school. <laughs> kind of nobody you know, that just I just disappeared. Um but that was a really crucial and interesting part of that early part and and then I ended up moving to South Bay, which is Manhattan Beach and Hermosa Beach, and went to Miracosta High School and kind of became a second rate professional surfer and then when that didn't pan out I landed at Surfer Magazine and uh
2: so you're obviously really passionate about surfing how did you parlay that into writing were you always into writing or did you kind of see that as an avenue after your your pro surfing career well like I say I was a bookworm
3: so I would walk out of
2: I would walk out of Venice
3: library as a kid with you were allowed to check out 10 books and I would check out 10 books every week I mean books stacked up to my chin it was ridiculous um and it's funny. My ten-year-old son Teddy is the same way. It's like, I you know he he can't stop reading. So, I was the guy as a kid. Even at surf contests, where in between heats, I was on. I was. At, I'd be sitting in the car reading books. You know. So I never thought about being a writer, but I loved to read. And and I was if I wasn't surfing or skateboarding, I was usually reading. Um, the, the pro surf thing was never really in the cards. I was you know I was okay, but and I tried really hard. And I I did have a couple of. Contest results that I still kind of dine out on. I, I think I the first OP Pro, the one that uh, Shane haran won. I I won the trials of that, which would be kind of like what's the highest stars on a QS these days? Um, ten thousand event, isn't it? And they now call them a QS ten thousand. Yeah, so I mean, so winning a trials back then would would have been like that, and, and it was it was fluky, you know. But I'll take it. I, it's like I, you know, somewhere deep within the archive of WSL, there's a piece of paper that says that I was the 43rd ranked surfer in the world in, 80, in 82, I think, or 81.
1: I, th- I feel that should be, probably be a bit of paper that's framed somewhere rather than, uh, yeah, rather than tucked cool. away in the
3: archive. <laughs> I know, you know, if I could find it, I probably would frame it. Um, but, you know, again, like, <laughs> I will always humbly try to bring it up as, I, as I've just done, because, you know, I'm, I'm stoked that I have the number. But in truth, yeah. I was just a, uh, I was a workhorse. And by age 21 or something, it was not in the cards. And I still was as frothing to surf as I'd ever been. And it was like, well, what do I do now? And I, I thought I'd be able to write my way into a job at a surf magazine and see if I can do that. And I and I did. You know, I, I got a job actually doing paste-up. This was long before computers were doing the design work. I got a job as a paste-up guy at a little magazine called Breakout. Down in Carlsbad, and a year or so after that was done, Surfer had an opening, and I applied and got a job as an intern at Surfer and stayed there for six years so that was that was, you know my whole career as a writer was just the result of me not being a good enough surfer to to uh, fail on the pro tour
1: myself and and rue often say that that you know we feel very lucky. That we never went down the the sort of pro surfing career and instead found you know other ways to work within the surf industry that that didn't you know revolve around the need to keep scoring points and getting photos and, and that we're able to you know involve ourselves very heavily in in surfing but but without that ticking clock
3: i i completely i completely agree and i and i even think that extends to the idea that you know if you can make it a career make a career as a what do they call it you know like a photo pro or a soul pro or something but even that is I think would have been really difficult it had you know even if I had the skill because I I need something else to shoot for I need something to you know I've always needed something to to aim at and strive for and, and I didn't miss many waves from going from pro surfer to um, struggling writer I I was able to surf every day still so it, it seemed to work out okay I mean, we'll talk later about later on about the money part of it, but you know, surf wise, it it went fine.
2: Yeah, Matt, I'm right in saying that you were the editor of Surfer Magazine for a while, isn't that correct?
3: Yeah, another thing that I've dined out on that is technically true: I was the editor of Surfer Magazine, (laughs) but but it was. I think I'm I'm I've never looked it up, but I'm pretty sure that my time as the editor was the shortest of any Surfer editor. I think it only lasted maybe six or eight months. I was the managing editor for a while and I was just about ready to leave. I'd turned 30 30 while I was at Surfer and I decided I was going to go back to school and I was sort of setting all that up and all of a sudden Steve Pezman walked in and said, well, you know, would you like to be editor? I almost like rolled my eyes and thought, shit. So I really didn't want to be editor at that point. I had these plans. But cooler heads prevailed and I realized that if I don't become editor at surfer i'm always going to wish that i had become the editor I, I it's a nice thing to be able to say and it's a it was going to be a great experience and it was so i did that for six or eight months almost i think with the half with the idea that like i just want that on my resume i want the experience i want to be able to say that i was editor of surfer and then i quit and went went to school but but sure enough you know i mean look when you guys introduced me it's like editor of Surfer Magazine, and, and the truth is, I was editor for Surfer for, honestly, you know, I think it was six months, so.
2: I think that's really interesting, because you, you left as editor of Surfer Magazine to actually go to college, and most people do it the other way around. They, they go to college to get the job, but you, you almost sort of did it backwards.
3: You know what happened was, I I turned 30, and I'd been at Surfer for six years, and I just I needed a, I needed a change. I'd been in Southern California my whole life, and I was dating a woman who was a law student at, at Georgetown Law School in, um, I guess, in DC. And my brother at that my brother at that time had already gone to college, and he was living in Washington. So I was kind of flying back to these. I'd been visiting New York. I'd been spending a lot of time in Washington, and it seemed like all of a sudden I turned thirty, and I just wanted to break out of the surf bubble, you know, and. God, and I just bought a house in San Clemente. I was, you know, the whole thing at Surfer was so set up. I, I think they wanted me to eventually be publisher, which would have been a, a bad idea. But all of a sudden, it just like I, I really desperately wanted out of all of that. And, and I went up to UC Berkeley and I uh, more or less talked my way into be, letting them allow me to come in as a transfer. I had enough credits to become in as a junior. But yeah, you know, I, and I was when i sold my house and packed up the van and moved to san francisco actually oakland to go to berkeley at 830 it was it was the biggest rush of my life you know i, I it was maybe the only brave thing i've ever really done cuz i was leaving a great job i was leaving all this security i was leaving all the people i knew and i and again i just sold this house that fuck is now worth millions was You know, (laughs) I sold. I bought this house for one hundred and eighty thousand dollars on the west side of PCH in San Clemente, and I—it's God—it's got to be worth two million bucks now. And I sold that to go to school. But yeah, you know, I got up and started going to school at Cal. Found out that there was great surf at Ocean Beach, and became you know spent two years as a sort of surfing student. And in some ways, it might have been the—it was certainly the most exciting time of my life, and it was sort of the scariest time, and maybe. I, uh, that's, it's one of these. It's this one period of my life that's got, got a kind of golden hue around it, and I do think it's because I, you know, I, I took a chance, and it it was great. I loved being back at school, and I loved surfing bigger waves up at Ocean Beach, and I loved the fact that I jumped, you know, and not ended up on the rocks. I, I, I landed on my feet.
2: So you were in San Fran in the early '90s. That was the same time that Bill Finnegan was. Uh was was in the area, isn't that true? He left,
3: I think, a year before I got there. But he, so he was good friends with Mark Renniker, who, who Bill wrote about in Playing Docs Games, which is sort of the centerpiece of his book.
0: So just as a little side note, the book that Matt's referring to is Barbarian Days by William Finnegan. And we actually interviewed William Finnegan, or Bill as he's more commonly referred to, in episode twenty three of the surf assembly podcast, and he actually went on to win a pulitzer Prize for the book after the interview, although not because of it i suspect
3: <laughs> and Reniker was kind of my um, almost like my my spirit guide when I got to San Francisco. he was really good he took me he was you know he was my mentor he showed me how to paddle out he san francisco 's are just a tr- really tricky break to to get wired and figure out and and Mark was really good about helping me, you know, through that part of it. But um, I didn't know much about Finnegan until I think the second year I was there, maybe the first year that that New Yorker article came out, playing Docs games, and and you guys have probably read that, right? We have. Bill's actually been on the show. Oh yeah. So so Mark was furious uh, when that came out. I don't know what he was expecting. I don't know what you know. I, I don't. They'd been friends. But, Bill had kind of been to Mark what I was now to Mark, like sort of a, Mark likes having, um, not underlings exactly, but he likes having, God, it's kind of hard to explain. We all did this willingly. We a all... Robin to his Batman. Exactly, right. It, but almost like he he had multiples. There was usually a few of us that were sort of doing that. And, and as Bill wrote in the article, you know, Mark's personality is so strong and so... Um, the energy he puts out is so encompassing, and you just sort of end up going along and doing stuff that you wouldn't otherwise do. I mean, Mark was the one that got me out at Mavericks, which is insane. You know, on two or three occasions, I'd never wanted to surf there, and somehow he made it seem like it was going to be this big, fun adventure. And, <laughs> and the thing was, and, and the thing was, he was actually right. I, I ended up, I, I ended up being really glad that he had done that. But um, you know, Mark, Mark's one of those guys that gets you to do things that you would never otherwise do, and, and so Bill kind of left San Francisco to go make his career writing in New York and, and did it. And, you know, you, you have to kind of almost forcibly pull yourself out of the Reneker orbit. So Bill had just done that, went away, went to New York, and 18 months or two years later writes this enormous two-part New Yorker article, which I think was the last ever two-part New Yorker article. I don't know how many words it is. It's, you know, 20,000 words or something. and Pretty hefty. And... Mark was really upset by it, and Mark literally went through the whole article with a pencil and circled all the parts that he felt were wrong and or unfair. Duh, duh, duh. At that point, you know, I was kind of like nodding along going, yeah, yeah, what a jerk, duh, duh, duh. you know, Mark was my guy, and I didn't know Bill at that point, but, you know, a year later or two years later, I reread the article, and, and it, it, it does what every good New Yorker article does, you know, the, Mark Renniker is an incredibly compelling figure in that but he's also complicated, and there was nothing in the piece that I felt anyway that was that was cruel or unfair. It was just who Mark is, and I'm not sure if Mark, you know, who, who of us can recognize who we are, you know, to other people, really, you know, so Mark, as everybody does, has a different view of himself that I think came undone a little bit when that article came out, and then, you know, a couple years after that, Bill got in touch with me for some other reason, and we became kind of email friends, and I ended up during a visit to uh, New York, having lunch with Bill in the Hamptons somewhere. Um, and he's, he's delightful, you know, he, he's he got a, a very deadpan, fantastic deadpan sense of humor. And he's a, just a hard charging surfer, super stoked. And there was a period there where I was wanting to do more with my writing. And he was desperate to talk more about surfing because he was so deep into the New Yorker thing. And, you know, we'd get we'd get on these email chains where he just wants to talk surf, and I just want to talk, you know, about about writing and that. You know, so we became we became friends th- through that, and, and remain so to this day. In fact, he wrote the introduction to the book version of Encyclopedia of Surfing, which to this day I think on Amazon Encyclopedia of Surfing is listed as a book by. Um, William Finnegan and Matt Warshaw in that order. So,
2: yeah, yeah, I think I've seen that. Yeah, and Will I'm, Finnegan wrote or he contributed or no, he
3: just did the intro, but or did a forward. And the the funny thing is, is that I at one point like ten years ago, I just finally got kind of pissed off about that, and I I got in touch with Amazon and said, look, can you just put Finnegan's name as the is on the other side of my, of my names? Cause it, <laughs> and, and they and, and they did for a while. And honestly, since Bill won the Pulitzer, um, I think it's back, the book is now backlisted. I'm not sure about this, but, you know, it was William Finnegan and Matt Warshaw, and I'm I'm, per- <laughs> I'm I'm perfectly fine with that. Like, that's great, you know. You have this very
1: unique style of, of, of writing, you know, the, the, the pieces that you've written for surf journalism and, and you know, the history of surfing, which is, is to this day one of my favorite nonfiction books that I've ever read. What were your influences in, in developing your writing style? Where did that blend of fact and humor and storytelling come
3: together from? You guys are probably too young to remember, but Drew Campion, who used to be the editor at Surfer Magazine, mm-hmm. Drew is still an excellent writer and super, super bright and really funny. He actually lives up here not too far from me, but for a while in 69 and 70, you know, Drew was just everything at... Surfer, He was Surfer Magazine, and that happened to be the time that I came on. And again, I was the 10-year-old reader surfer. So Drew, because of those issues that he wrote and edited and did everything to with in Surfer at a certain age, when I was really looking to, just really soaking everything up, Drew was the first person that I think I uh, became sort of a, uh, without even knowing it, he became a big influence on on my writing. And, And later on, Maybe the greatest surf rider of all time, or just at a pure talent level, but Phil Jarrett, who I met much year, met years later, but when Phil Jarrett was doing profile pieces for Surfer, um, those were incredible, and I, you know, I recognized that Phil was on another level as a writer from all the other surf riders. But the really important thing happened, I think, for my writing and around 1990 when I broke away from Surfer and got my first subscription to the New Yorker and was just in very much in a mode or or, it just became very clear to me that the really good work is all being done outside of surfing. You know, there's some good writers in surf, but take all, you know, if I could take all that I knew about surfing and all the influences I've had there and then realize that I can, you know, if I could somehow read what I'm reading from Anthony Lane or, or John McPhee or all the other great writers in the New Yorker and let that be the sort of, new model, the level to which you want to aim, uh, you know, all the all the things that were sort of coming into becoming influential to me as a writer were coming not from the surf world, but from writers who were three or four levels above me. So that's always, you know, I, I I really only have one talent, I think, and that is, you know, no matter what I do, like with the websites, if I'm video editing, or if I'm photo editing, or if I'm just caption writing, or Blogging or any or doing social media, anything I can do, I'm really good at finding out who does this much much better than I do, and how can I essentially copy them or you know or learn from them? And so I've always been good at that. I, I can find out, I, I can figure out who does this best, and then I'll I'll make a study of that of that person. And there's been lots of people like that, you know, Derek Riley for his writing and for his posts on Beach Grid and also his work you know, that he did with, with Stab and, and Chaz Smith for another you know, sort of newer guy. Nick Carroll's always been influential to me. Um, so it's you know, taking what I can learn from the best guys in surf, but I think more importantly, taking what I can learn from the, the best writers outside of surf and doing my best to sort of combine that and maybe try to put a little something on it that sounds like me, that not like them. But you know, that's almost secondary. If I, I just want to sort of uh, absorb all I can from, from my betters.
0: On the other side of the coin what do you see as bad surf writing like what things do you try to i mean obviously i don't want you to name any names but you know what things do you try to avoid what things do you see in an article and just think ah that is not someone whose work i'm going to be reading again
3: it's not nothing it's nothing particular to surf you can always just see where it's where it's being done lazy you know you can always just see where someone's taken the easiest way to get from a to b and not sort of bothered to just elevated a little bit and and you know where you see this a lot and this again getting back to Derek Riley is you'll see it in the little things like for example i remember in stab magazine when derek had started that you know he wouldn't even mail in a tiny little part of a subscription ad or a tiny little thing on the masthead everything derek touched everything derek had to put words to he he was he was thinking it through at some level and how can i just how can I arrange this to get a, just a tiny little jolt of something? And he's not trying to, like, do a cymbal crash every time, but you can see this, you know, and not just with writing, but, you know, music or anything else, you know, where if, if everything that comes up, every everything is sort of an opportunity, you can do it right or you can do it sort of half-assed. And I'm not sure if I can be more specific than that, but as a rule, what I just see in bad writing isn't necessarily bad it just seems really lazy it just seems mailed in it just seems like you know almost like it just came it was just a first first draft get it done get it get out the door and, and move on so and conversely anytime i see that somebody is enjoying themselves enough to bother to write even for something as small as a as a seven word caption or something that gets me you know that that's inspiring to me i don't know if i answered your question but that's kind of the best i can do
2: I am a big fan of Derek Riley and Chaz Smith as well, and I was wondering—is where do you uh, go to consume your surf media? Is sort of their line, uh, what you what you follow?
3: It's, I was just thinking, if I go anywhere, I think it all comes to me because it's just like—I
2: <laughs> mean, you know—it's like it's like what's coming
3: through my Twitter feed. What you know, I'll I'll look through the I'll look through Twitter, and I almost never go to Beach Grit, but being on their. Twitter feeds, you know, it'll everything that comes up in the course of a day, I'll click to. So it, beach wit for sure, um, stab occasionally. Um, I, you know, I still get a lot of, I still actually get print magazines, which I will page through, you know, during lunchtime or something. I still read the New Yorker every every week, but surf media, gosh, it's it, there's so much of it now that it, it, a lot of it seems to come down to sort of just almost like, you know, what is the filter? I, just, I can't, I can't get through all of it. Um, especially the you know, the stuff uh, online. So I guess I kind of allow my Facebook feed and my Twitter feed to kind of cure, almost curate what I, what I read these days. But I do say, you know, the, the only thing I will go out of my way to read anything by Sean Doherty, anything by Charlie, uh, Chad Smith, and and Derek and uh, Nick Carroll, though I, I I find it harder to find Nick Carroll stuff these days. I'm not even sure who he's writing for, on mm-hmm. a regular basis. But
2: oh, and um, and Steve Shearer as well. So it's Steve Shearer, he uses a pen name, Long I Tom. Think, like, yeah, he's amazing. He does the best uh, WSL. So good, so good.
3: I, I completely agree. And and by the way, having said that, like like as much as I feel overwhelmed by the flood of of, of surf media. Um, if we take into consideration some of the thread stuff, especially on Beach Grit, there's more, you know, entertaining, good surf riding out there now in late 2017 than there ever was in, you know, what anybody else will tell you was like, you know, a peak and there's nothing to touch how good it is now, how much fun it is, how many more voices we're hearing and how many, how much, just how much funnier people are about it. So when Long Tom, when Steve Shearer or, or, or Chaz does a contest coverage, for example. You know, look, we're all watching it on on the stream, you know, so we don't need any of that blow-by-blow. Blow. And those guys are taking the opportunity to cover an event at Snapper or at Trestles, and they are just using that as a springboard to just go up and do some some of the most amazing uh, Son of Hunter Thompson type writing for us. And it's it's never been as it's never been as good as it is now. My contest coverage when I did it for Surfer was. Shit compared to this, and they've they've moved it on. They've they've taken this to a place that I think is just just the way the surfers themselves have have, but even better. I mean, the the writing in surf is better than it's it's ever been. Do you think the
1: the access, you know, the fact that we are all able to now watch the surf movies on a on a streaming basis, kind of it 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 opens the door. It frees the writers up to, as you say, go a little bit uh, off script and talk a little bit. About what else was going on whereas back in your day at Surfer magazine you actually had to report to us right. what happened at the contest because there was no way we found out about it otherwise that,
3: that's so true remember I mean God it used to be honestly you you know you wouldn't know who won the contests until two months later isn't that that's just seems yeah. incredible you know but yeah so right when when and and I should let me back up I feel bad would Derek <laughs> Derek, Derek Hind was really good at doing both he would you're right. You're obligated if you're if you're writing something that is going to be the presentation of a contest that happens, say, in Durban to people in California, and they're not going to read it for two months. You know, you would get the blow the, the blow by blow, you know, from the quarters, semis into the finals. But you know, Derek would also do a great job at bringing a lot of the the character and the flair and the personality into it too. So he gets a lot of credit for that. The, a lot of the contest coverage before the internet was just this droning you know recital of points and who and wins and moving on to round three we had da, 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 and it was it was terrible but yeah the more yeah. the more that we don't need that the more that we're all seeing it online the more that we're all getting the results in real time absolutely anybody you know anybody who's anybody who's going to give you a blow by blow in print i think is kind of almost missed the point you know there's we don't need nobody needs that
2: and speaking of blow by blows, do you uh do you personally watch the WSL webcasts?
3: I I, used, I watched a lot more two or three years ago and I've kinda at this point I, I purposely don't watch uh, round one or what's the other no losers round? Four, maybe? I think it's four. I don't watch one or four and that's it's just this thing that drives me crazy about you know the about WSL. Um, I just you have to have guys losing, otherwise it's just no fun to watch. And I hate you know, I don't I don't mean to sound cruel, but Somebody has to win. That's that's what's interesting about watching it, you know. So I don't watch those rounds, but I'll watch the rest, especially if the surf's good, and especially if, obviously, well, I mean, pipe. I guess John's pretty far ahead, but especially if there's
2: a real race, I I'll I'll, I'll tune in for sure. And what do you think about the media that they produce, like the commentating team and?
3: The commentating team has been, you know, an embarrassment since. Way before,
2: well, no, I mean, way but
3: that's not WSL, that's, that's ASP, and that's going back, it's never, it's never not been bad, right, Um, with a few exceptions, but I, I love Barton Lynch, and every now and then, when they've had Sean Thompson on there, but the crew itself, you know, that, I, I, we could do a whole other cast, let me, let me, let me switch, I'll say this, I, the thing that I love, I think the WSL has done a, a year by year, if you could, we could go back and compare the, what what you're seeing on the screen itself just keeps getting better. The, there's more angles. The on-screen graphics totally are agree. the on-screen graphics are better. The 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 visual part of all that continues to improve improve every every year. And, I, and it's, you know, so I got I, I want to tip my hat to them for that. And and um it's a pretty compelling, you know, it's a pretty compelling thing to watch. And and, and oddly, you know, where surf contests in a way to me used to be the chore part of how I would take in surf media you know like whereas you'd be way more stoked to see maybe a you know a videotape of something uh, in the 80s or even the 90s like you know when's the new killed video dropping or what's you know what's Taylor Steele working on at this point now with all the clips that come out and all of the you know all I want to see now is something that's happening live and unfiltered and where there's actually, where I can feel something that, mm-hmm. where there's pressure. I love, I, and I could never do this as a competitor. You know, I would just fold if, 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 you know, if it started, if I didn't get a good wave right off the bat in a heat to sort of relax, I would just crumble every time. And I I can't, watching those guys, watching two guys or two girls go head to head in a heat with something on the line, even if it's just, you know, even if it's just advancing to the next round or something, but, I just get so caught up in what it must be like to be out there needing a 7.2 and there's, you know, uh, 2 minutes left and you don't have priority. Like all of the stuff that goes through a person's head and all of the luck and all of the us you know on our Twitter feeds sort of screaming at each other. I love all that. It's happening it's it's scrolling as it happens right in front of you and in terms of surf media, that's that is really my my happy place. Is to have two windows open, one on Twitter and one on the event. When there's a really good event happening and something's on the line, and that's an experience that didn't really happen unless you were on the beach somewhere. Um, and and you know even then, being on the beach at Pipeline for a Masters, I I, I wouldn't say that it's worse than but to you know, to see it to see it as well as it's produced by the WSL and to have all this banter going on these crazy people from around the world to me is, I think it's just an amazing development in, in surf, you know, and I, I, I've seen a lot. I've seen pipe masters events on the beach and it's great to see it live. I I suppose that's still the ultimate, but God, it's not a bad consolation prize to have it the way it is now where we get to all share it together
2: um, all the way around the world. It's fantastic. You're
0: listening to the surf simply podcast.
2: It's funny that you mentioned Twitter and sort of the instantaneous, the way that surf media is consumed now, because the encyclopedia surf and the history of surf is almost the polar opposite. It and did did you consciously position it like that, or is that just how it's developed?
3: You mean just because it's sort of a a, a dry? It's
2: yeah. Well, it' not quite dry in prose, but it, it's definitely built to last. It's more of a, a, a reference book rather than here, now, gone tomorrow.
3: Well, that's a really funny thing, and that's a really the the, the online the, my, my whole online. Project is is a really uh, strange hybrid, and I knew this before I put it up. I you know, it's a reference site and it's an encyclopedia. I added the history site later, but that too is not meant to be. You know, you're right. It's meant to be durable. You know.
2: Yeah, it's meant to be lasting.
3: Right, which which has which has its own value certainly, and and but the whole trick was always going to be well, how do I get people to come? You know, come check it out and, and get in here and look at it and and neither the history nor the encyclopedia is something that you need sort of day to day so before the sites went up I had been completely purposely not part of social media so this is going back to like 2000 I think ten. Mm-hmm. And then again, like I was saying before, when I realized I've got to do something and I will figure out how to do it. When I, I made this decision, well, I'm going to put these sites up and I better get to figuring out. <laughs> how to make them work. Right. I better figure out this whole MySpace thing or you know, whatever it was. I didn't know. You know, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. And it's like, you know, open the Twitter account and take a few tentative steps into there and Facebook and, and all of that. And, and all and all of it was to this, not sort of much for my own enjoyment, although I have enjoyed it, but it was all to the point, to the purpose of whatever I can do to make sure that EOS and history survive. And and so that's led me to becoming kind of a, I'm out in front of my sites, like, sort of like a clown twisting balloons and dancing and blogging and doing everything else the way all of us do, (laughs) just to get your attention. So hopefully you'll come in and and look at, look at the sites. Except, you know, the blog posts and some of that stuff ends up becoming the thing itself. So initially I thought social media is just my way to wave people in to the encyclopedia and to history. But of course, you know, it becomes its own thing. It becomes its own. But it's just been really fun. So my, you know, whatever I have to say about Kelly's wave pool or if I make a video clip that's nothing but surfboards flying off the racks of cars, that's not really part of encyclopedia or, or history except that it's surf you know but those are just things that I'm now doing almost independent of of the guts of the site it's just because I enjoy doing it and I you know I, I take this the pride that I the pride that I found when I did make a video for example of, I've, I've made a video last year it was nothing but surfers through the years smoking cigarettes like they're in all these old surf movies it was just so weird you don't see it anymore but you just see all these famous surfers just puffing away on cigarettes and i had this one i had this one great shot of john of john peck um of john peck in like 65 smoking a cigarette while he's riding this really long perfect way at, Honol- at Honolulu bay and like you know that that's that was just that was a great day for me when i thought do i have enough can i find enough clips of guys smoking cigarettes to make a, vi- a two-minute video and i did i took me like it took me a day to find them but and it was so that was a great day, and it had nothing to do with what will be lasting or important about Encyclopedia. But you know, some days it's just all about doing something that's going to entertain people for two minutes, and I and I love doing
2: that. I have seen that video, and I love it. Yeah, it's it's uh,
3: God, and I, what did I? And you know, a lot of it do comes down to um, uh, if you could, you have to find the right song, and I can't remember what the. I think I found a Sam Cooke song for um, the smoking one. Anyway, I won't, you know, I won't try to, I won't oversell it, but (laughs) the song itself is really funny and it just sort of goes with it. And yeah, it was a blast the
1: the thing i wanted to ask was you had this you know the, these two huge works the the encyclopedia of surfing and the the history of surfing along with your other stuff that you've done with above the roar and wh- what was the motivation to to take those online and turn them into this living breathing and ever evolving site rather than going for what what would have been the traditional route of updating and having you know new editions of those books be published every five or ten years
3: when i finished encyclopedia of surfing i think in 2002 the book came out in 2003 mm-hmm. somebody at that point said well you should make a website out of that and i thought a website who you know what a strange idea but you know and <laughs> you know te- i don't even think the technology at that point was there to have done it the way it's ended up I, I, you know there was no wordpress back then for example, and. I, I could have made a website at that point, but it would have been pretty... Pretty clunky. Pretty clunky. But I did, I did in like, I think 2005, I did register com, which for, you know I just, what I just sat on for seven, seven bucks a year or something um, and didn't think much about it. I went on to do History of Surfing, a couple of other books too, but History of Surfing. And when I finished History in, I think, 2010... Um, I was so happy with that book. It just so seemed like an end point in a sense. I'd done these two big books. I didn't have much else. I didn't feel like I had much else to say, book length. And I just said to my wife, I go, the other thing about history, I just so love the cover of that book. I never much liked the covers of my books. And everything about that book, about history, the the design of it, the cover, the, the text seemed like that's it. I can't do any better. And so I said to Jody, I go, you know, that's that's going to be my last book. And she said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, maybe now is the time to look into making a website out of Encyclopedia. I want to go back to Encyclopedia. And the reason was that in Encyclopedia of Surfing, the book, um, if you have a copy, I mean, it's I'm still really proud of it. But it is just m- a marching columns of text. It's just one column of text after the other. And every now and then, like every third page, you get a little three by three inch black and white photo.
1: It it it, it is like it's it's like the encyclopedias that you used to have at school.
3: It, well right, and, 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 and part of me was proud of that. I actually took that when I finished it up is like somebody somebody one of the first Amazon reviews for the Encyclopedia of Surfing, the only one that gave it like a two star was somebody the review was, it really is an encyclopedia. As if like the per- <laughs> the person who bought it wanted a surf book with a lot of f- photos you know and and they yeah. and so the point was it really and I <laughs> I took it kind of as a weird compliment like oh well yeah it's yeah. it's like eight hundred pages of text and and it just seemed so outrageous when I had the idea that I was going to do a surf book that had no basically no photos in it you know but i it I came out just the way I wanted it on the other hand once the technology was there it was That project was half finished, you know, every one of those entries, every single one of them needed to have some photos or better yet, some video. And so, you know, once when I started looking into it in 2010, at that point, all that stuff was doable. You could make, you know, I I could teach myself how to do Final Cut Pro. I could, I bought this gadget that allowed me to create um, MP4 files out of these huge stack of tubs filled with. VHS tapes, so I was just plugging tapes in. For this went on for months. I would plug in tapes, you know, video cassette tapes, create an MP4 file, and load that into Final Cut Pro, and I and then keyword everything. So I would, you know, I knew where to find the the clips of uh, Shane Powell. I knew where to find the clips of um, Lopez, and I knew, you know, so and and anyway, the point was is I could finally take this project, the encyclopedia that was done in terms of the text but really only half done because I now needed to add I needed to illustrate it now you know and I'm still doing like, like that whole part of it just transferring the text of encyclopedia of the book to the website I'm only like two-thirds done with that I'm not even close to being finished I'm still doing that and still adding and it's all just comes down to now I need photos of everybody and, and video stuff and
0: Matt that, that, that's just such a, a monstrous task and you know what what was the motivation behind it I mean I get the idea that you know, I if it was me, I could sit there and I could go. Oh, this would be awesome to take all of these hundreds of hours of video and put them onto MP4 and put them on a on a website. But then, if it was me, I would be probably a couple of hundred hours into the process, and I would start questioning whether this was you know how I wanted to spend my days. And and you know, you've pushed on through with this like marathon project. Like, wh- where
3: does the where part does the of that come is? Um, is this? I get this incredible, almost like this weird confidence from doing something that I know that nobody else is doing because I've cornered this little market, you know, like like nobody else wants to do this. So there's nobody else that I have to like keep an eye on who's going to do it. And it's like I just, you, there's no competition, which I just kind of like. It, um, it And it is incredibly tedious. But at the same time, and I, only other database geeks I think understand this, at the same time, if you create a database and it works and you're able to access stuff in... A moment that otherwise you either can't find or it takes you forever to you know to sort of look for it. It I've said this before, it feels almost like a superpower. Like if I need to if if I need to find a lot of information about you know, some really sort of obscure 80s surfer, if I need to find an interview with Glenn Winton, I can find that. And 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 maybe the guys at at Surfer magazine can find it as well, but they have to like basically page through it you know and and same with all the video stuff was is, is, it's just it turns into this thing where once you get used to being able to find stuff that quickly that that kind of motivates you to keep to keep all the things going and then there, there's an altruistic side to it as well which is nobody else has done it and if i don't do it some of this stuff is going to sort of vanish And and i've made that you know part of the pitch when i'm saying support support encyclopedia of surfing is by all, you know. Let's keep the websites up. It also allows me to keep doing this work that does preserve stuff that I, you know, Surfing Magazine folded last year, for example. And there is no um index for Surfing Magazine. That was, you know, that was a magazine that was around for fifty something years, and it's at risk of just it'll be in people's collections for until the collections turn to dust, but you know, all that stuff, none of that stuff digitized that whole, that whole huge chunk of surf history will vanish, you know, unless somebody is around to, to digitize it. And at least, you know, at the moment, at least I'm indexing it and I can find stuff. And but that's, you know, that's kind of a, that motivates me too, is to, it's this sort of preservation aspect to doing it, which I find really satisfying, but mostly it's, you know, mostly it's just selfish. I can find all this stuff and nobody else can. So it feels good. Um, and, I, and, I, and the other thing is, I don't really mind. I've never minded having long-term projects. What what uh, is really difficult for me is getting started on a project. I'll, I've I've put stuff off for weeks and even months if it's a st- or or even if I have to do like a, sh- a really short article. Which I, the reason why I say no to people that hey, can you just write a thousand words for this and and I can't because the whole part of thinking about it beforehand is what brings me really low, and I, I often can't get started everything I'm working on now is underway. It's all a continuation of something I started uh, years ago. And I know just what to do. I know just where it needs to go next. So I like that security of having these things. And, and you know, between the, the three websites, History, Above the Roar, Encyclopedia, if I get sick of one, I just go to another one. If I get sick of that one, I go do some databasing. If I get sick of that, I make a video clip. So there's There's a lot of tasks within the one big task that I can put my mind on and and work on until I get sick of that and I can do something else.
2: So Matt, the encyclopedia and the history and above the roar, they're they're online now, they're digitized, they're starting to really be living and breathing. You know, the videos are being updated constantly, the photos are are, are in abundance. And so what's sort of the situation for our listeners that might not know? What's the situation with the website right now?
3: So... So let me go back to it. So we're, we're just happily in San Francisco, my wife and I and my newborn son. Uh, this is 2011. And I just finished history and I was just starting to put together encyclopedia. And everything was just sort of laid out ahead of us. We were fine. My wife had a good job at a publishing house called Chronicle Books. My son had just turned two. And, you know, and, and I was either going to put this website up as a sort of a weekend project and do some freelance writing. And kind of out of the blue, my my wife got an opportunity or a, got a job offer from to Amazon, which, you know, which meant a move to Seattle, which meant everything. Everything I've just sort of talked about was going to suddenly, I mean, really suddenly when Amazon wants you to come up, they give you like, I think it was six weeks, you know. So we... We went from, I went from having, you know, the next couple decades of my life sort of set out in front of me to making this big right hand turn up the coast to Seattle. And part of that deal I didn't want to do it. I wanted to stay down there and just keep surfing and keep, you know, whatever we were doing, stay on that track. But part of the deal for Jody she said, look, I'll fund you building Encyclopedia of Surfing. You can just stay home and do that and not work. For the next year, and I thought, great—that's uh, that's you know that's incentive. I'm, I'll, I'll take that. And so the whole idea with Encyclopedia was I build the site over the next six or eight months, put it up, and by 2012 it had to be profitable, and and that would be the start. And you know I just laugh. I said, of course, yeah, that's that's easy. Thanks, that's very fair, fantastic. And then you know jump forward again to six months ago, and you know she's given me a f- five years grace period, but. It hadn't, you know, Encyclopedia of Surfing hadn't ever really done what I'd promised it would do. For three years, Surfer Magazine was the presenting sponsor. And and that was just enough for me to say to Jody and to say to myself, it's, it's getting there. I, I think I would, Surfer was, I was getting enough from Surfer to pay the site's expenses. And I was paying myself, I think, $28,000 a year. Salary. I'm. I'm actually a salaried employee of Encyclopedia of Surfing, even though I'm also the president of the of the company. But, and then when Surfer um, didn't re up eight or ten months ago, you know the trouble with having one presenting sponsor is if they if that and I I didn't I did not see that coming. I thought Surfer was just there forever. It was never not going to be there, and I hadn't realized sort of what how perilous the whole print media and surf had become until all of a sudden my only source of income for my site was was pulled away and it was you know and I couldn't get another I couldn't find another sponsor for it everybody else was sort of in the same boat and the surf industry has never been particularly interested in my in my sites because it's not my sites aren't pitched to who they're trying to get to and that led to the notion of putting it behind a paywall for you know to be in a, a subscription thing and That's gone well. It's grown sort of slowly, but not anywhere near where I had pledged to Jody, you know, back in 2011, where it needed to be. So anyway, long story short, it came down to, look, this has to be where we promised it would be five years ago by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's fine. You're right. Fair enough. Um, And that led to the subscription drive I'm in right now, which is I need to um, get enough subscribers and enough donors to... Put me uh, expenses paid and thirty grand salary for me and so you know that's I'm in the middle of that I'm in the middle of trying to get this thing over that hump and on to two thousand eighteen so you know here we are middle midway through a through a fundraiser that is doing is doing well but i'm not you know it's not out of the woods yet, so you are you know after, we are now completely up to the date as of like literally 40 minutes ago because I haven't checked to see if I've got any new um, donors. I I will say it's been a really interesting five days this, in this fundraiser in that God, a lot of people really, really love what what I'm doing and I sort of appreciate it and are are backing it. And I, I mean, you know, things where I'm getting $5 donations and then anonymous $5,000 donations, you know, and none of it, very little of it is coming from sort of who you'd expect. It's not... Really, the surf industry—it's not famous surfers; it's just regular surfers who dig what what I'm doing, you know. And and part of me is mystified as to why the surf industry doesn't—I don't think that they don't like the site. I think there's just a tremendous indifference. It's not part of their Mm -hmm. business plan, you know. That being said, I feel like all those companies probably have a, a charitable giving arm or something, and and for some reason, you know, none of it's trickled down to me, but. Again, you know, the other side of that coin is the guy next to you in the lineup might be the guy who gave me five grand anonymously. And I think that's going to end up carrying this site into where it needs to be. And I think, I think, not to get too far ahead of myself, but I think for the next year and the years following, I'll slowly build the subscription base. And by the way, you know, the paywall is three bucks a month. It's a pretty low paywall. Pretty low. It's pretty affordable. And I also want to say, you know, for Everybody, anybody who's hearing this, anybody that can't afford three bucks a month, just email me, and I I, I'm, I give the site to anybody that actually can't afford it. I mean, that's it's no problem for me at all to have sixty thousand subscribers, as long as two thousand of them are paying. You know, I don't want the subscription wall to be a barrier. I just it's almost like I guess you know I I, I know three bucks a month is a cup of coffee. You people can afford that, and it's I, I really believe it's worth you know, signing up for. And it's, it's like Netflix, you know, you put it on your credit card and it's just a little $3 ding each month that hopefully you don't even notice. Um, but I think it's going to end up being a thing where I've got this slowly growing, growing subscriber base. And, you know, once a year, like, like NPR, I'll have a, I'll have a one week fund driver to uh, make up the difference. And if I get to a certain point, I won't even need to do the fund drivers, the fundraisers. But I think that'll, I think that'll get me through for the next couple of years. And I'm, I'm, Again, I don't want to get ahead of myself because you know if I if this whole thing if it crashes this week and I get no more donors, I'm still in a place where I'd have to figure out uh, if I'm going to pull the plug on it. But I don't, you know, I, I kind of have a hard time right now thinking that way. Um, but yeah, you know, this this thing as of five days ago, the deal was I raised thirty grand before year's end or um, pull the plug.
2: I'm twenty five and I've been consuming surf media pretty much nonstop since like the late 90s as early as i would have been able to and if it's not for your work if it's not the encyclopedia and the history of this history of surfing there's not really any access for me to learn about the history of the sport if if your work disappears it's almost like poof it didn't it didn't happen
3: yeah and and you know all of the resources that i used are out there still so somebody else could come along if i do have to if I do go away somebody else could come along and do it but it's all kind of here I've kind of pulled a lot of the strings together in one place and that and that's pretty valuable it's all sort of um it's sort of a clearinghouse for a lot of stuff and, and you know from from my sites it makes it easier to find the sort you know if you wanted to find further, sources for any given topic you can usually find them by rep, you know going to my sites and figuring out where to go to or or for that matter just email me and I can you know I can tell anybody but like um yeah it's it's all here and it's all kind of compact and it's all in one place right now and and it doesn't make any difference to anybody sort of on a day-to-day thing but at some point you know you're going to want to know who Chemo Hollinger was and and he's fascinating and he and he's you know and and he's not on the web much unless you find his entry on EOS or the clip that I made of him um or you know if if I can be here to be your an information desk for somebody and they want to know where they can find out more information about Kim Hollinger so it all it is all worthwhile and then you know again where I hope I want to be of day-to-day service is again just making a clip of the 10 best nose writers from 1965 you know that's that 's just a fun thing for everyone to sort of look at if um, even you know even kids might get a kick out of that or I think that surfers again as separate from the surf industry, but I think a lot of surfers even twenty five year olds see the value in that and um, so far so good on the on the fundraiser
2: so you mentioned that all the resources are out there if you wanted to do this research um, if I want to find any obscure character in surfing. I I immediately go to your site. Where, how did you go about researching all these characters, especially the ones that don't exist on the, on on the web anymore?
3: Well, I started collecting books and magazines about 25 years ago. And so um, the same project that I was talking about where I was keywording all the videos. um, Before I did that, I, I went through every magazine and book that I have and made a, a searchable database of all that stuff so most of the stuff if i'm going to do a piece on chemo hollinger i'll type him into a database which is separate from the one that i have from for the movies and videos and i'll find all of the articles and books that chemo's in that i have here in my own library so i have you know 90 something percent of the research that i do i can do this i do the search here on my databases and then find it here uh, am i right matt i've i've heard
1: a rumor that you have possibly the largest private collection. No, of... not even my
3: my no. My collection is not even anywhere. Wouldn't even be in the top twenty five private collections. Oh, really? No, no, not even close. But it is. But I think I have the only collection that's database that I've I've gone through every page. I haven't scanned every page, but I've gone through every page and made notes about where to find stuff. So
0: I have this good friend in uh, that I, I came up with in London who collects vinyl records and and it's just out of control he's, he's now got like shipping containers in his garden full of records and I like, i sort of imagine your garage is just busting at the seams with old surfer magazines and books and
3: no here, and videotapes. no what
0: I, is, is that is that how it looks
3: no the, it, the 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 thing that i did to tidy that up a bit is any given volume of magazines a volume being a year i Went out and got hardbound. So my magazines—they they look like law journals, you know. Like so, it's you know that that way they don't get all ripped up and lost and everything. But I did have the tubs. I had these giant plastic tubs um, filled with you know videos. Those old videos, those just fucking god awful videos from the eighties and nineties that we used to watch. And you know, Wave Warriors <laughs> and and just you know endless. I was so relieved every one every time that I would digitize one of those and create an uh, MP4. I had this huge, uh, I had a trash barrel in my office, and I would just pop it out of the cassette player and throw it in the trash, and then you know the whole trash barrel, would be, it would be it would be overflowing, and I had to like, you know, on the. Um, under cover of night, go out and find where I could find a dumpster where I could dump all these old <laughs> cassettes. And it, it, it felt so good. because I, You know, you don't want to be the guy that's got all this stuff flooding in your garage and just sitting there getting moldy. So once I got it all... And I'm not sentimental about... I'm nothing sentimental about holding an old object in my hands. If I had, If I could get everything, all my books and magazines, actually off my shelves and in files, I would do that in a second. You know, like, just by just by taking all my magazines and hard binding them I just ruined the the market value of them cuz nobody wants them hardbound they want them separate you know so but yeah getting rid of all that shit felt so good dumping that's dumping those old vi- tapes into the into the dumpster just felt great so yeah my collection's okay it's not great but it is it's all dialed in I can access everything and God, let's move on to something else. that's, like not about databases. (laughs) Okay. Well, actually, uh, Matt, uh, we've probably got the most
0: uh, data file. Is that a word? um the most data loving audience of, oh good okay uh, well, shit. podcast that, that's kind of our thing we've kind of hit that little yeah, yeah. in the venn diagram between science and data and surfing
3: i've, I've found my people <laughs> fantastic
1: good with all this research that you're doing then is is there ever someone that, that you've really gotten stumped with and you've you've set out to research them and you just hit a, a
3: brick wall you know there's a couple of guys from uh, the further back i go the harder it it gets um yeah and and there's th- you know three guys that i find that i feel that as much as we think we know about them we actually don't one of them actually is duke i feel like all we've ever gotten with duke Hanamoko, and this is going back to before i was born before my dad was probably born is just this the icon the um the figurehead, right? And I, I just yeah. almost never see anything on Duke where I feel like I'm getting a sense of the man because everybody is so busy just hanging lays on the legend of Duke Hanamoko. So he feels like a cipher to me. Um, same with George Freeth, who came over and did a lot of surfing in, um, kind of introduced surfing to the mainland, and just died alone, but you know, during the World War One from the flu, like so many people did. There's something really sad to me about George Freith. He seemed like a very solitary person. But the the biggest mystery of all to me is Tom Blake. I I just feel there's something about Tom Blake that I I don't his whole there's something about him also. Again, you can't you, there's just no chipping away at the legend anymore it seems like, but there's something about Tom Blake that just seems incredibly not not quite morose, but I don't know, unsettled or you know he did he 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 kind of created this this lifestyle that we love so much of being really you know close to the ocean and living it full on and not sort of doing things the way everybody else does but i kind of get the feeling that wasn't it was by necessity for him you know like like he didn't really get along with everybody else and he had a horrible childhood and i got the feeling that he was just sort of doing what he could just to sort of not feel pain or injured or something and i don't know any of this for sure again this is just sort of my but there's you know the deeper i sort of got into into tom blake the more i feel like i wasn't getting anywhere with tom blake you know um Mm -hmm. so I, i i end up sort of like everybody else like paying tribute to all the all the accomplishments but wondering you know who he really... Wondering what was underneath them. Right, and, and, and sort of you know what was motivating him. And I guess, that there, again, I, I don't mean to sound dramatic, but there just seems to be this underlying sadness with, with Tom Blake that I can't quite uh, put my finger on. And I do think, to it to its credit, surfing uh, allowed him the most uh, comfort and, and pleasure and satisfaction of his life. So surfing's always been really good. You know, surfing's done a great job at housing people um, that I, I think needed a place... To go um, emotionally and you know and physically.
2: Has there ever been anything in your research that you just got categorically wrong? And uh, were you criticized by the surfer for it?
3: Um, I don't know, is that I've ever gotten anything of, of real importance wrong. I've gotten a lot of birth years wrong. Um, I, I'm a pretty careful writer. and I also cover myself often. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna say something about a surfer, that is. Not complimentary. I'll usually find a quote from somebody else. <laughs> to do
2: that, it's a good you strategy.
3: Know. So quite, a, you know, a, a good part of the quotes that are in my work, uh, whereas where I can leverage, get somebody else, you know, to do the dirty work for me. Um, yeah, I know that I've gotten things wrong, and I feel like I've, I feel like I've actually apologized for things. But I honestly, I can't, and I'm not trying to say this, like, but I can't remember what it sort of would would be um, right now. I think. There's, there's not enough stuff about other parts of the surf world where, in other words, I don't have enough stuff about Brazil in the encyclopedia. And part of that is a language thing is that I can't reuse any of their magazines for. I can't resource. I can't access that stuff. There's not enough on my sites about Florida, for example. I think there's not enough in my sites about surfing in Japan. It's pretty American and Aussie. Centric, you know, Um, which I kind of I don't justify it, but, you know, it is true that, you know, a huge portion of the major developments in surf have been Southern California, Hawaii and and Australia. But um, I don't want to um, use that as a crutch to not go deeper into other places and other people in surf.
1: So if the uh if if you know if this drive to to raise funds and if the subscriptions increase, do you think that there might it might be possible to start bringing in translators and and ex- expanding your staff at EOS to cover cover media in in you know French and Portuguese and Spanish
3: I do you know I've I would I would love to at some point you know if I'm in phase 1 right now you know I don't know phase 3 or something I, not the next one but I would love to have to be able to translate everything i've done into um identical sites in 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 portuguese, french and japanese, to, you know, for starters, and spanish for sure. That's a huge project. I would need to have, you know, at that point i start needing to i would start needing to take on partners and and that that's again i can't, you know, i'm kind of especially right now in the middle of this fundraiser. I, I you know the idea of thinking about taking on partners is, 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 I can't, I don't have the, I don't have the bandwidth for it. Um, part of, part of the business plan, such as it is for EOS has always been that the whole thing has to be incredibly small. And, and, uh, anyway, this, this whole thing is just out of my guest room, you know, and, and, um, I've got a MacBook pro and a scanner and a printer and, a, and again, a, and a bunch of stuff on on shelves and that's you know really it that the overhead has to be tiny all of the contributors all of the filmmakers photographers and the writers that have given me stuff for above the roar everybody every name you see on eos is contributing for free and that's really like when i step back the biggest like miracle of this site the thing that i've pulled off that i don't think anybody has done is to bring together as many people as i've done with nobody bitching at each other and everybody agreeing to just do this for this one project. It helps hugely that I'm a 501c3 nonprofit. It helps that the books were already out there so they knew that what they were contributing to and it helps that I've no, I've known all I've been around for so long that I and I've known all these people most of them for so long. But, you know, at one point early on like in 2010, it took me about 6 months to convince Art Brewer the photographer to give me access to all this stuff. And he just, he just, he just batted me around like a mouse for months. He would, <laughs> he would sort of say, I don't know, Matt shit. You know, he, art and I have a long uh, history. and It's been up and down and we fought and we've, and we've been friends and we fought again and we've been friends. And, and at some point when I was almost ready to give up and art knew that and, I mean, he was just rat fucking me. He just knew that he he just had me, and he, and he knew it. And at some point, he called me up and he said, "Hey, man, I just want to tell you, you can take it, take anything you want. I'm stoked. I love your project. Take whatever you want." And I hung the phone up with Art, and I think I wept, you know, for a while. I think I did something. I like I just I put my head in my hands, and like that was a a point where I thought, okay, this is going to work now because I took Art's uh, Art gave me the the, the high sign. And I went around immediately to, a, you know, a two dozen other blue chip filmmakers and photographers and told them about my project. And I said, by the way, Art Brewer's in. And, every, you know, everybody knows Art's kind of the godfather, you know, and, and and Art giving me the okay to use stuff opened up the doors for so many other people. And EOS looks as well, as great as it does, not not because of me, but because of Bruce Brown and Leroy Granis and Art Brewer and Greg McGalvery and... Taylor Steele and Kai Neville, and I could, you know, I could burn up the next 15 minutes reeling off all the people that contribute, none of whom have gotten a single penny out of this.
2: So, one uh, one last question while we have you on the line, um, and now that we've lured you into the audio format, if you could sit down and have a recorded conversation with anybody over the history of surfing, dead or alive, who would it be?
3: It would be Dale Velzi. Um who I may have met once or twice when he was still alive, I, I sort of only come to found, found out sort of later on that he grew up in the same beach town that I did, and the surf shop that he had in Manhattan Beach was right across the street from a place where I had my first job as a busboy, and you know he he knew people that I knew, and you know there's all these sort of overlap, but that has nothing to do with why I want to interview him. I just find Anytime I read about Velzy, anytime I even see pictures of him and, and this that crooked grin that he's got, um, and every time I read about just how spectacularly he imploded with his business because he didn't pay his taxes, I, everything about Velzy I find attractive from the craftsmanship, the creative work he did, in, in sort of inventing the modern surfboard. Um, mm-hmm the way he surfed, the people he hung out with, the stories he told, the language he used, the, the whole, everything about his attitude towards surf, I think, sort of either appeals to me, uh, I mean, it, certainly it all appeals to me, or uh, it, it just makes me laugh, and it just seems like he led this amazing life in surf. And, and, you know, I always have a soft spot for anybody that got to surf Malibu after, you know, right after World War II when it was empty. And Dale was there, making boards for Dewey Weber, making boards for all the hot guys, surfing it himself, you know, shaping boards on sawhorses under the pier. And that whole era is my happy place. You know, I, I grew up there myself, but I got there 20 years, 30 years later. But Velzy as a surfer and as a businessman and as a failed businessman, all to me just seems, I don't know, it just screams surf to me, the way the way I like to think of of surf, and, and I, and again, I very much include the failures as well as the successes. You know, I don't think we were meant to be like. I love Hobie Alter, but you know, Hobie just, Hobie just took surf and just marched straight through, never put a foot wrong, made millions, and went on to something else. And I don't know. I kind of like how Dale managed to, you know, have this huge enterprise and then just basically set it on fire. And then you know a few years later rose up like a phoenix and sort of did it all again. Mm-hmm. So he's just he's just kind of my my favorite guy. I also think he's the guy that somebody needs to make a movie about. I've always thought of Dale Velzi as kind of the archetypical surfer for better and for worse.
2: I uh, I know a certain surf historian who might be well suited to write the screenplay. <laughs> Never,
3: not me. No, I I I swear to god if if I if I can get my 30k and get this thing going, I will never veer from doing this project until I know <laughs> I, I just I'm just done I'm 57 man you know I just want to get this thing set up and then I want to go to uh, Nicaragua twice a year and surf and then keep working on it and that's that's sort of it it's it's funny when you get older um, narrowing like having your ambitions sort of become narrower feels really good you know when I was when I was your guy's age I think I still wanted to some level take over the world or something and I just want to sort of be with my family and create my website and go surfing when I can. And I can't imagine branching out to do a screenplay or another book or a memoir or anything like that. You I know, just want to do this thing and have a glass of wine with Jody at six, at 6 p.m. and talk about my day and her day.
2: Well, so if our listeners did want to support the Encyclopedia Surf and all the websites, uh, how would they go about uh, donating?
3: If they go to the site... Um, encyclopedia of surfing um, there's a donate tab and there's a subscribe tab um, and that should get them through
2: awesome and where can they find you on twitter and social media
3: um, God, what is my twitter handle how, how can I not even know that let me just check I
1: think it's Matt Warshaw I've got you down as as, as Matt Warshaw
3: yeah that's it and, and and there's also encyclopedias on Facebook and um, I think that's it you know I do have an Instagram I think the Instagram is encyclopediasurfing.com or Encyclopedia Surfing on Instagram as well and um what a funny place Instagram is. You know, anytime I post on Instagram anything about like save encyclopedia serving, donate today, and it's just, all that happens is I get a hundred new um, followers and no money. It's like it's just all the followers, <laughs> you know? um, for some weird reason. You know, the, all the old guys are still on Facebook, and those are the ones that I what, that I actually can move the dial on. So uh, I like all mm-hmm. the I like all the platforms. Um, but but Facebook is the one that I probably spend the most time on. I'm I, you know I'm I'm Facebook's demographic. I'm an old guy.
2: Matt, thank you so much. This has been uh, such a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for taking the time to be on the show, and we wish you the best of luck with the fundraiser.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean th- this whole project just seems to be uh, you know hugely altruistic, and uh, I, I I think apart from saying thank you for coming on like thank you for doing it um Mm -hmm. thank you for putting in that time because it's it's just awesome
0: i know a lot of our listeners out there are going to be at the end of this episode immediately going to encyclopedia of surfing and and stepping up to support you
3: well i couldn't I, i really enjoyed it and and uh god you know we should have done it done this a year ago or something um so thanks you guys for letting me come on and um and ramble i i really appreciate it i've really i've really enjoyed this Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I
1: hope you enjoyed that as much as we all did. It was very cool hearing him talk about how he's
0: done decades of heavy lifting, just getting all of these videotapes from the 80s and 90s and transferring them all onto MP4 and just like hours and hours of going through. How his whole garage is full of bound surfer magazines that he's taken to a, a binders and got them organized by year. I mean, it's like, it's just the guy is just so incredible. And he reminds me of when you hear about all of those famous scientists the kind of the Isaac Newtons and the Charles Darwins and they they make these great big breakthroughs that sort of make them famous but really what set them apart was their ability to go I'm going to take on this huge task of documenting this huge amount of data and there's very few people that you come across especially in this kind of uh, very instant day and age that have got the sort of emotional tenacity to actually stick with such a huge project all the way through and I think that's something that's amazing about Matt another thing that I, I think is really cool about the Encyclopedia of Surfing project when he's talking about Tom Blake and you suddenly get the impression that not only is he just archiving all of this data for, for posterity but he really has emotionally connected with all of the individual personalities all of the people that he's, that he's writing about
1: You know, and that's so palpable in the way he talks about them. Yeah. Um, Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we will be back possibly in the uh, early new year. Uh, So if we don't talk to you before then, have a wonderful Christmas and uh, a very happy new year. Have a happy holidays, Harry oh yes happy holiday season happy holiday season indeed this is a
0: multi-faith and non-faith podcast (laughs) Yes, that's true
1: from all of us here guys goodbye bye Bye.
0: that was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica for more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers go to surfsimply.com